Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Uh, you can laugh. I have to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. I don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I'm going down to Anfield and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you shiny man? Well, now we're really getting down to it in Brazil. Only two more spots available in the quarterfinals and already the debate is raging about the identity of the star of the tournament. Will Messi take it up one more gear tonight? Can Neymar hold it all together for Brazil? Will James Rodriguez confirm himself as the surprise number one. Well, we here at the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast would like to throw another name into the conversation. Our star man is called... We don't actually have the man's name, unfortunately, because he's never identified when his microphone appears on television being jabbed aggressively in the direction of some poor, unsuspecting Nigerian footballer. I'm speaking, of course, of the post-match interviewer who does not let his countrymen off the hook after a poor performance. You may remember we played a clip of our friend interrogating the coach, Stephen Keshi, after, I think it was the draw against Iran, in which they played pretty badly, during which he lobbed in questions like, how did you get it so wrong? And why did you pick such unfit players? Well, he was back in action last night. Or he threw to his interview. This is a guy now, he's part of the worldwide FIFA feed. So they have, uh, presumably, people from the countries involved interviewing the managers and players. Or he threw to this guy, speaking to the Nigerian captain, Joseph Yobo. You may think he'd go easy after a very proud performance by the team against France, but you'd be wrong. Joseph, on Dread Cup, this is not the result you wanted for that. Yeah, it's not a result. It's not about the caps. I've always said that it was about qualifying to the quarterfinals, and today we gave everything and they got the break. And you know, this is football. Yeah. Well, set pieces cost you at the last World Cup in South Africa. It's been your Achilles heel here as well. You're heart of the tournament. Do you think there's something you should have done about all that? When you look at it, we can do better. But you know, they got the break. Credit to them. You know, I thought we played well today, and we didn't get we didn't get a goal today, and they scored first, and the game changed. But as we said, you look at the game and you, you think something that you could have done better. Some say your big players didn't turn up today. Is that true? Some of your big players didn't really turn up? I don't think so. This is, this is football. You know, some days, some people might have a good day or a bad day. But I thought we played very well today. I thought we really fought hard. 
they've got the break and you know that's football I thought we did well today Ah, oh, you were crap at set pieces last time. You're still crap at them. You're big players, Joseph. You're big players, i.e. you, Mr. Hunter Catman. You were useless today. How do you explain all this? Unidentified interviewer. He's the star of this tournament. Let's get over to Brazil. Yeah, you can laugh. That was the World Cup. And Ernie, did you enjoy the latest clip yes. of our friend from Nigeria? Oh, I wish that guy was still in the tournament. Nigerian Gabriel Clark. I love his style. Yeah. But you know, maybe we've we've lost that in our in our post match interviewing. It's too it's too empathetic. It's too much, oh, you know, I hope you're feeling okay. You know, I hope uh, you know, how did the game go for you? Are you sure you're gonna be all right? You know, I like that that just that confrontational style. Um, they should really go for it. Actually, to be honest, I saw a little bit of that same sort of brand of questioning in the mix zone after the Ghana-Germany game. Uh, there was there was quite a lot of confrontation going on between the uh, Ghanaian journalists and players. I remember that that was a really good result from Ghana, really, 2-2 against Germany. Um, I remember in particular Sully Montari um, staring back at one uh, questioner I can't remember exactly what he was asked, but it was clear that Montari had taken exception to it. Montari is quite a scary-looking man up close, especially when I think he had some type of eye injury that had made his eyes his eye go uh, bloodshot. So he had one red eye and one sort of yellow eye, and uh, uh, and quite a fierce face anyway. Uh, Sully Montari uh, staring back across the this this flimsy barrier, and I wondered if I was going to see something uh, something. Big happened, but of course that was just postponed to a couple of days later when when Montari ended. He ended up taking it out on uh, on some kind of <laughs> yeah. some kind of camp follower. Uh, the journalist got away with it, but maybe he was just storing it up for for a later uh, for a later occasion. Well, the Nigerian camp obviously is stacked with more forbearance because Joseph Yobo was as stoic as his manager Stephen Keshi had been. Maybe they're used to this guy. They might know him. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> I think so. They've probably been interviewed by him before. Listen, you're on I'm, the sure, I'm, sure they, I'm sure they know him because those guys are, are usually all, like for instance, I've seen Gabriel Clark do it yeah. um, for, for England. So I guess I guess that most of those guys are quite quite high profile within their own countries or, or prominent broadcasters with with the main TV network in their countries. You've been on the move since we last talked to you. Tell us where are you now? I'm in the great city of Sao Paulo, oh. uh, getting ready for Argentina against Switzerland, which is uh, going to be here a little bit later on the one p.m. kickoff our time today, five p.m. your time, of course, Alan. Much earlier over here. Um, strange feeling when it's. When you're at halftime in the second match and you kind of feel like it's about 10 o'clock at night and it's actually 6 o'clock. I still haven't quite got my head around it. But yeah, it's Sao Paulo, Sao Paulo today for Argentina's percent. Well, let's start talking about that a little bit, Ken. Normally we'll start with yesterday's games, but I'm going to flip that. Um, I'm going to chat a little bit about this one because I'm fascinated by Argentina against Switzerland. And I was interested by your piece in the Irish Times this morning in which you... Well, I'm going to sum it up, Ken. I'm going to put words in your mouth. And you make the point that Messi's biggest strength so far in this tournament has been his... Incredible, incredible sloth-like laziness. <laughs> I would, I would say on economy of effort. That's what you said in the paper, um, Ken. But come on, it's la- he's, he's he's just sitting there waiting to be served by the rest of it by his. What do they call them in cycling? His domestiques. Yeah, well, that 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 is pretty much what is going on, I suppose. But he's loitering with a certain amount of intent. Mm. You know, he's if if Messi was loitering around and then. You know, he also had a big zero next to his call him next to his name in the goals column. Then, 
people would at this point be asking some pretty serious questions about Leon Messi. But luckily he scored four goals and he scored the winning goal for Argentina in all their games. So as long as he keeps doing that, he, you know, nobody expects him to run at all. But yeah, it is quite interesting just how little he in fact runs now. Um, less than, I mean, if you look at all the players in the Argentine and Switzerland squads who have, who have played most of the three matches so far. So, so I think there's 17 outfield players who have played at least 200 minutes across the three matches so far. Uh, Messi has run less than any of them, apart from Kun Aguero, who's played almost a full half less than Messi in terms of minutes uh, and has only run a short distance less and was really injured. So, um, that, you know, that's, that's a guy who isn't... He, he's, he's obviously got a very different style from a lot of the other... Uh, players out there. I mean, there's Shakiri, for instance, who's his equivalent on the Swiss team, covers a, v- a vastly greater amount of ground, appears to do a lot more work. In fact, if you were to just to look at the statistics, you might start to conclude that Shakiri was a much more valuable player than Lionel Messi. And I suppose it just goes to show that running around a lot isn't necessarily a good proxy for the impact that you can make yeah. on a game. I mean, I think if you look at the if you looked at the tournament after the group stage, the country that had run the most, I mean, the country covered the most ground was Australia. They were the hardest working team in this tournament, down, and also one of the worst teams. So um, Lionel Messi uh, is, you know, he, you know, we've seen it obviously for Barcelona, where he's he used to be. I mean, we started Barcelona. He was on the right. He moved around quite a lot. And one of the things people used to praise him about was the fact that he would get stuck in defensively as well he wouldn't shirk a shift he'd be back there tackling and then up the other end of the field scoring or creating a goal well he doesn't do that anymore um now he plays center forward he tries to he essentially spends all his time uh, on the field standing just outside the opposing penalty area waiting to get the ball and it's Barcelona's idea as well that they want to get they want to get the ball to him in that area where he can do damage. They want him to get as many touches of the ball in that area as possible. They don't want him anywhere else in the field. Uh, Certainly he doesn't want to be anywhere else in the field. He feels that way now. Um, He's kind of grown accustomed to the club role and wants to take it, I think, onto the international stage. It's a bit like Philip Lahm, I suppose, for Germany. Um, You know, he likes his his role with Bayern Munich so much that he now doesn't want to do anything else. Uh, Well, Lionel Messi is doing that for Argentina. But, you know, as long as he's scoring a goal or a goal and a bit in every game, then I think they'll be happy enough to do his running for him. How is the supporting cast doing, do you think? Because uh, I know the, the, the whole point about this team is that it also has Aguero and Di Maria and these kind of players. Should they have too much for the Swiss, do you think? Well, I don't think Aguero's going to play today. It looks like it's probably going to be Levetsky because Aguero's injured. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, it may be, um, be Levetsky. They trained with Maxi Rodriguez. So... Uh, we expect to see one of those players go in. I mean, I think Argentina have got some excellent players. I mean, Higuain is a is definitely you know a World Cup caliber setter forward. Angel Di Maria is one of the best midfielders in the world at the moment. Um, Javier Mascherano has been having a pretty a good tournament, and you know I think certainly at least one of their fullbacks, Sabaleta, is is a pretty classy operator. But you know I think they've got a bad goalkeeper. I don't think the center, central defenders are, are that good. So I could see Swiss, I could see it actually being quite a high-scoring game. Um, Switzerland usually score a couple of goals. Um, they're a difficult team to stop scoring. I mean, to, to, it's, it's difficult to stop Switzerland scoring now. It's not like the old Switzerland, the Kobe Kuhn Switzerland, who um, suffocated Ireland a few times 
in the middle of the last decade in, in various qualifying groups. This is a different type of team. They've got a lot of um, they've got a lot of attacking base. They've got a lot of players who actually under current Swiss law are considered foreign. Um, I mean, the, there was the thing, oh, and I don't know if I've already mentioned it to you on this show, but the um, there was a picture that kind of went viral. Switzerland, yeah, Switzerland is a country of direct democracy, so they're always having these referendums on various issues. And in February, they had a referendum on uh, citizenship because it's one of these countries where um, where people get very exercised about uh, immigration. You know, it's kind of one of these small, rich countries. Uh, immigrants come to the country and people suddenly are worried that the country's got to be swamped by immigration. Uh, I mean, they, they famously had a law in Switzerland a few years back where they banned the building of minarets. Uh, you know, these, these sort of towers that you get on a mosque. They banned the building of those, even though there were actually only four minarets in Switzerland at the time. So that's, it didn't take many minarets to, to make the Swiss start to feel a little bit threatened about the influence of of abroad. Anyway, they brought in this um, referendum, which was tightened up there. It was passed by a small majority because I don't think the turnout was great. And it tightened up um, sort of employment law, immigration law. Um, and what happened after that was this a picture, you know, like one of the team photos where the team is posing just before the game starts. They, they all line up in the two lines and some and all the photographs, photographers take pictures of them. Um, one of those type of photos yeah. of this national team. Um, showing what the team would look like under the new law. And essentially eight of the players, uh, eight of the 11 players were just blank. You know, so they just effectively removed eight players from the picture. There was 11 guys, you know, there was like Lichtsteiner and uh, Benaglio, I think, you know, these kind of Swiss guys. Uh, but eight of the 11 otherwise would not actually qualify to play for Switzerland under the new uh, rules that they brought in in February. So just, uh, what, I can, what you could say is that these players have had a huge influence on the way the Swiss team plays. I mean, there's this really strong Balkan influence. Every single one of their the forwards in the squad traces their ancestry to the former Yugoslavia, whether Albania, Macedonia, not Albania, of course, isn't actually the former Yugoslavia, but that uh, Balkan region, it's a different type of Switzerland from what we've seen. I think they will score against Argentina, but I don't think they can keep, with the kind of defending we saw them produce against France, I don't think they're going to be able to keep at Messi and Higuain either. Yeah, all right. Well, Ken, I've got to say, this is one of those days when everybody listening, including myself, is very jealous of you. You get to see possibly a part of history being created if Leo Messi does go on and dominate this tournament as he has threatened to do so far. So we're, I'm sure you're looking forward to that. But let's talk a little bit about Germany crawling past Algeria last night. You mentioned Philippe Lam's demands, apparently, to play in midfield there. I find this a little bit grating because, Lam, you're... You know, you're a fullback. You're the best fullback in the world for a number of years, probably. But you're not Leo Messi. And I know that you read Lamb's book quite recently. I would guess, Ken, that the Philippe Lamb who was writing in that book about the influence and the attitude of the senior players when he first got involved with Germany might have actually... The 19-year-old Philippe Lamb might rail against the whatever age Lamb is now for demanding to play where he wants to play. Well, this is the thing. I mean, no one is quite sure what's going on here. Um, is Lamb demanding to play in the middle? I mean, it seems that Lamb is obviously keen to play in the middle, but how, to what extent is he really pushing that? And to what extent is Yogi Love caving in to his, you know, his captain, his senior player, I suppose, when he should be taking a stronger line? I mean, okay, so the, so the situation is that Lamb starts playing in central midfield for, for Guardiola this season, Guardiola wants him in central midfield because he plays a different type of game. And he likes certain things about, that Lamb has. Lamb is a tactically clever player. He's got very quick feet. 
he's he's kind of a nippy player. Um, you know, he's, it's not like he's big or strong. I mean, Kadira is is an opposite type of player. I mean, they call him the Panzer at Real Madrid. I mean, it's typically it's culturally insensitive Spanish type of nickname. <laughs> they call they call Kadira the Panzer in reference to his uh, size, his strength, his armored prowess. Uh, Philip Lam, on the other hand, is a is more. He's like the closest thing Germany has to Iniesta. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's still you're still a long way from <laughs> you're a long way from Iniesta. But the point is, here's a guy um, who's good at manipulating the ball uh, with quick feet, two footed, passes short, uh, is able to nip past opponents in, in tight spaces. Guardiola wanted one of those players in his central midfield, and when he looked at the Bayern Munich squad, he didn't see one. Schweinsteiger isn't a player like that. He's more of your old school midfield anchor man you know a kind of a a guy who, who cruises around the back of midfield picking out passes and you know sort of swaggering around a little bit but his feet aren't as quick as lamb so okay this is what this is why guardiola chose to play lamb central midfield now lamb liked it and i think liked the responsibility everyone everyone knows that the central players are the most important ones in the team and so when you get when you get sort of promoted from being a fullback <laughs> to being a central midfielder, maybe it sort of goes to your head a little bit. And Lamb obviously liked it and felt, yeah, I, I can do this. I'm really good at this. You know, maybe I'm the best that we have. The problem is that Germany have a different squad from Bayern Munich. Bayern Munich have got um, David Alaba at left back. They've got, okay, he's not the greatest fullback, but he is at least a fullback, Rafinha at right back. So when they play Lamb in central midfield, they actually have got fullbacks in the fullback positions who are capable of playing quite well in those positions. Germany don't. So Germany have got uh, Jerome Boateng playing right back. They had Mustafi at right back last night, but Mustafi's got a hamstring injury, which may mean he, has, he, he came off last night, which may mean that this whole debate becomes relevant. Uh, Hovedis is the other player, the left back. He's also a central defender. So it's clear that Philipp Lahm would be best deployed by Germany as a fullback, simply because they have quality alternatives in central midfield, Kadira and Schweinsteiger and Kroos, they all play there. Um, and nobody at fullback. So just looking at the resources they have, it's the best use of their resources. And you would have, and this seems very obvious to everybody, apart from Joachim Love, the coach, and uh, evidently Philip Lamb himself. Mm. Now, whatever Lamb says, though, he is only the captain and not the manager. If Love is, is, is caving into him and allowing him to get his way, that means to somebody like Kadira or possibly somebody like Schweinsteiger sitting on the bench thinking to themselves, why am I not in this team? Oh, yeah, because uh, Philip Lamb wants to play in central midfield. Hmm. Now, what you've got then is one pair of eyes on the bench trained very carefully on Philip Lamb to see how he performs in that central midfield role. And I'll tell you, he has to play very, 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 very well in order not to get people's backs up. And so far, I don't think he has. I don't think his performances in central midfield have justified um playing him there, ahead of specialist central midfielders. I mean, it'd be one thing if he was playing him there, he was dominating, he was controlling everything, he was, you know, he, he was defending and attacking and, and doing everything that you expect from a great central midfielder. But he's not. He's, he's pretty average. You know, he reminds me of, um, you know, he's, he's Mark Kinsler. You know, it's, not, it's, nothing, uh, it's nothing special. So why, in, in order to, in, you know... Why are we depriving ourselves, uh, Germans are asking themselves, why are mm. we depriving ourselves of a guy we know can play, know can perform at fullback, for this not really all that fantastic central midfielder? It doesn't make any sense. No, and it, would you say that everything revolves around that, all the issues that Germany had in this game were based on that? Is that, is that too simplistic? Because particularly in the first half, 
they just, I think people were shocked by how, not just ordinary they looked, how terrible. Thomas, Thomas Miller at one stage trying to, I don't know what he was trying to do, but he was going by the last defender, kicked it with one foot, kicked it with the other foot, and went out of play under no pressure. It's crazy stuff that you never see from Germany. Is there a, a bit of a malaise in there? Well, I mean, it, it depends. I mean, if we're talking about the particular game last night, I think that Algeria are a good team. I mean, I think we were talking about them last week. So, I mean, I'd watched their game against South Korea and been really impressed by by how good they were. Now, obviously, you, you know, South Korea not one of the strongest teams in the World Cup, but Algeria played really well. So I think particularly in the first half last night, you have to give them a bit of credit for the fact that Germany looked so bad. But, you know, I've been, watch, I've been at all the German group games, and I haven't really been hugely impressed. They're a little bit one-dimensional. Attacking, in, in the attacking sense, they, they've got a couple of, you know, basically plan A is give it to Tony Kroos, and then he'll try and pick someone out in a dangerous position. And then uh, plan B is, if that doesn't work, just try and get it wide and fizz it into the box. And that's really all they do. You know, you don't really have, um, you don't really have other variations in approach. You don't have, for instance, dribbling, really. Um, I mean, I know Mario Gutz is supposed to do that, but, you know, he, he's a big disappointment to me. You know, I, I don't really, he, he gets subbed off at halftime, um, at halftime last night. Uh, I don't, I, you know, after after not playing particularly well. Now he's supposed to be a guy who can who can beat his man. But being able to beat a man is such an important thing, especially in a competition like the World Cup. Maybe the defenses aren't all that well drilled. You can beat a man, pull the defense out of shape. You've got a great, you've got a good chance of scoring a goal. Germany don't really do that. Um, you know, they 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 give it to Tony Gross and he he fires it forward, and that's you know, if if you can if you can stop that then you've gone a lot, a lot of the way towards stopping. And you would imagine you've got France might be able to stop that because they look like they're combining the slickness of their football in the first two games with, I'm going to call it a hard edge, Ken. Some would say filthy play on a couple of occasions yesterday. France are here to play in this tournament and also here to destroy. Yeah, to play, to destroy. I mean, we saw Matuidi yesterday oh. tackle. I mean, it was it was ruthless. It was a, a real assassination from Matuidi. He was looking to get away with it. Um, you know, in fairness, it's the kind of tackle that on replay you, you always say that could easily have been a red, but usually is always it's always a yellow that tackle. <laughs> Even though it's really dangerous what he did, it's always going to be a yellow card. So Matuidi, maybe maybe you could say he judged well, but France to me look like a better team than Germany. Well, I mean, just ask you, Ken, why you why you feel that tackle is usually a yellow card? Because you seem to almost be falling into the Kenny Cunningham camp here, Kenny. Reckons that what was it? well, he said that it would be deemed reckless play, and that would be a yellow. But he felt that it wasn't dangerous enough to be a red because he was in control of what he was doing, and he only had one foot off the ground. That was vehemently disagreed with by Ronnie Whelan and uh, Richie Sadler. Well, I, I would say Kenny Cunningham was probably more vehement in his argument. But the point is that he mm. reckons that a yellow was fair enough when most of us watching thought that's a, that's an ankle breaker. That's got to be red. Well, I think, I, I mean, did it break the Nigerian player's ankle? Because th- that, it seems to, be the, seemed to be the suggestion last night that he actually had broken his ankle. So I, so I guess by definition it was an ankle breaker. But I think that it's, we see those kind of tackles quite a lot. And I think he, um, I mean, if, if the guy had been sent off, if, if Matuidi had been sent off, I certainly wouldn't have been sitting here going, he shouldn't have been sent off for that. It would have been like, well, I can see why he got sent off there. But usually in a game, when you see a tackle like that, which catches someone low down, I think the referee usually doesn't produce a red card. If, if the tackle is six inches higher up, 
then I think there's a good chance Matuidi gets sent off. But oftentimes the referee just doesn't punish those ones, which are of equal severity, or equal force, just because they're a little bit lower down the leg. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't have a strong view that that it shouldn't have been a red card. I think it easily could have been a red card. But in practice, those ones are usually those ones usually end up being yellow. Okay. I mean, but but looking at looking at the French team, yeah. though, I mean, I I just think I think player for player, it's it's a better side than than Germany. I mean, the question is. I mean, it's a much fresher, it's a much newer side than the German team. The German team, there's something a little bit, there's a little, uh, something a little bit fossilized about it. Um, Joachim Love has been there as the manager since 2006. I think he's, I think he's clung on a little bit too low. Um, I think, you know, maybe the tournament he needed to win was the last tournament. And when they didn't win Euro 2012 and, and, and ended up getting knocked out in such a disappointing way, I think maybe that broke people's confidence in this in this team a little bit. You've got a you've got a generation of players in there um who you know really have to I think really have to are, are getting close to their last chance. I mean Lamb is foremost among among those. You've got all this public expectation. This is a, such a talented squad, but somehow it's not really amounting to to more than the sum of its parts. Mm-hmm. Whereas with the French team, I think you've got um I mean you've got hugely talented individual players um, who have only recently come together as a team with a manager who's who's only freshly in the job and who people haven't had time to time to get tired of yet, and there's just a kind of a, a really um, there seems to be a kind of a zest about them um, that is lacking in Germany. So I guess, I guess we're going to see uh, the proof of the pudding is going to be in Rio in a, in a few days' time. You spoke to one of your Irish Times colleagues there in South Pelican. Yes, yeah, so I spoke to um, Tom Hennigan, my Irish Times colleague, who's based over here in. Sao Paulo, and we, I guess we started off on talking a little bit about the amazing performance of Latin American teams at this Latin American World Cup. Tom, it's great success all around for Latin America uh, at the World Cup, Colombia, Brazil, uh, both in the quarters. We think Argentina are probably going to join them today, Costa Rica there too, Uruguay and Chile, um, beaten by other South American teams. Uh, is there any explanation for this? The Europeans are fond of pointing to the weather, but I don't really see how the weather can explain it. I don't think the weather is an issue and, you know, Italy, um, Spain, these are hot countries as well. Like all of Europe can often have much higher top temperatures in summer than South America does. So I don't think it is the weather. I think a lot of it is they probably just feel more at home. Um, it's the first tournament in, in South America since 78. Uh, you've seen the amazing support that the South American um, countries have all had. And I think that's you know been a big difference. They feel they feel as they say here in Casa, they're they're at home, and um, they're also, and this is something that the local press have been picking up in in Brazil and Argentina and elsewhere, is there's a lot of regional pride um, involved here. Um, I think that they are conscious that it's a long time since the World Cup has been here, and um, they want to make a good account of it and show that South American football, while it doesn't have the huge wealth that has flooded into Europe in you know recent years, that it is still, um, you know, as they would like to think, the best football region on the planet. Is there a slightly different quality to the nationalism here or the? patriotism is there a kind of a more fervent sense of national feeling in south america than in europe i think there probably is i think you know when you're european and you you know grow up in uh, post-war eu europe 
you're not aware that other parts of the world nationalism is still a very strong motivating force um, and that is true in in South America in certain respects but one of those certain respects is definitely football and that's because South America as a continent is not a region that in you know the whole wider geopolitical question matters much at all and they've often felt overlooked by the rest of the world or forgotten about by the rest of the world um, you know you have books about South America called the Forgotten Continent and um, the locals are, are conscious of that and football has always been one of their ways of showing um, you know how important they are uh, how successful they can be so there is a lot of nationalism vested in their national team and that's true of Brazil and Argentina in particular but the other countries as well um, you know they do have a stronger sense of national nationalism than maybe we do in Europe and football is one of the ways they get to express that globally. That idea though of, of re, as you said regional um, identification is something which European politicians have been trying to get their populations to do for probably about 70 years now without really any any success everyone's just bored by the idea of, of Europe really more than anything else. How, how, how has that managed to take root in South America? Is it something which has been deliberately cultivated by the by the political elites here or is it just something that people feel? Um, it's not something that's been cultivated by the political elites at all. It's the exact opposite, actually. Um, what it, it, It's based on history because most of the continent was ruled just by um, two colonial powers. So you have a shared language, which is a... a unifying force that Europe doesn't have. Um, and I know there's mainly Spanish and Portuguese, but you know you can get by using one in, in the other's culture, no problem, um, really. Uh, it is more on that level that there is a sort of a regional identity, shared history and shared culture. When it comes to political integration and everything, they are decades um, behind Europe. So moving around South America is still quite difficult. Um, it's often easier to get flights to, to Miami than it is to get flights from one neighbouring country to another. Um, the amount of just trade integration, diplomatic integration, infrastructure, all of that is decades behind. So in many ways in Europe we're sort of blasé about what we've achieved, but many South Americans would look at Europe and go, you know, if only we could have a situation like the EU because they see all the benefits it brings that we take for granted. But on the other side, they do have this cultural identity, which is much stronger um, you know, because of their colonial past and the, the shared cultural legacy, particularly the language from that. Uh, amidst all the, the identification, I suppose there's still a bit of rivalry. We're probably going to see that today. I saw um, one of the Swiss players, Benaglio, um, talking about the game in Sao Paulo, Argentina and Switzerland. He said he was pretty sure that the crowd was going to be on Switzerland's side. Was he correct? Yeah, I think he, I think he was. At the beginning of the tournament, um, when Argentina arrived in Belo Horizonte, they got an amazing reception, and uh, their, their only open training to the public before the tournament started was absolutely jammed, mainly with Brazilians and treating Messi like a rock star. But when they've actually been involved in competitive games, the locals have... Um, taken the other team's side. And I they think want Messi to be gone before he gets the chance to kill Brazil. Yeah, some some Brazilians want a Brazil-Argentina final because they think that will be the absolute maximum in their footballing history to beat Argentina in a final. 
Um, but I think a lot of people think, particularly as the tournament has gone on, that that would be extremely high risk at the moment, <laughs> uh, that scenario. So um, I think also just a lot of it is just rooted in Brazil and Argentina. Um, they don't know a lot about each other's country because of, of all this lack of integration that I was talking about. But one thing that they, that they do share is a, an amazing football rivalry. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> the Argentina team at the moment looks a little bit rickety to me, but with Messi scoring, you know, the winning goal in every game, it's actually starting to look a, a bit more scary from a Brazilian point of view. Yeah, Messi, Messi looks like he's he's shown up <laughs> finally at a World Cup and wants to make this one matter. He was 27 there last week and he probably realises this is his best chance. Um, but I agree with you. I think, you know, the rest of the team is, is not worthy of an Argentine um, top you know, team in, in within their traditions. They seem to be, even though they have many very good players and you know, a couple of other superstars, it just hasn't clicked and they seem to be looking to Messi, I think, a bit too much. So far that's worked out fine, but you know, we've already seen with the knockout phases that it's, the games are becoming tighter and closer and the opposition is only going to become tougher. And when, whether he can keep doing that for seven games I don't know you know mm. that's a big ask they do seem though well maybe the rest of the players not but Messi seems to be dealing quite well with the pressure of expectation I mean he seems to be the same type of player just quietly walking around that we see for Barcelona no extremes of emotion from him there have been quite a lot of emotional extremes though and you can see this particularly in the Brazilian players I think you were writing about this um We've seen Brazilian players breaking down with alarming regularity. I mean, sort of being overcome with emotion. You know, Julio Cesar in tears, Thiago Silva uh, and Neymar, obviously, uh, during the anthem. Um, there's a lot of pressure on these guys. Yeah, you know, after the Chile game, quite a few former players, um, um, including Carlos Alberto Torres, the captain of the 1970 team, essentially came out and said, look, get a grip. You know, this is this is not on. You know, this is not how you're going to win a tournament. And they said, "Look, you can let the crowd get all emotional during the national anthem." And Why is the, the anthem such a big thing here? I mean, I, I even see ads on TV. There's, there's this ad, you know, where there's all these kids, these sort of kindergarten kids, and they're singing the national anthem. And it's just, I've never known a national anthem to be to become such a popular. I mean, you know what I'm trying to say here. Yeah. I've, 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 I've never seen people make such a big deal out of the national anthem since, say, the French in the 18th century. Yeah, this goes back to the nationalism question that, you know, uh, expressing them, their nationalism through football and now through the national anthem. Um, I, I looked up the words. They're very boring. They're very boring. And it's not even, you know, that stirring an anthem um, compared to, let's say, like the French, you yeah. know. Um, but uh, this whole thing of uh, focusing on the anthem before games started in Fortaleza last year in the second game in the in the Confederations Cup, where there was a lot of animosity against FIFA. Protests were starting out on the streets, and FIFA, in their wisdom, decided, look, we're only going to have the first verse of the national anthems, otherwise they're going to go on forever. So they cut the tape, and the Fortaleza crowd said, you know, we're going on. So they, they sang the second verse a, a, a cappella, and... Uh, everyone thought, like you know, this was a stirring demonstration of Brazil's nationalism and pride in in front of FIFA, and it's caught on, and it's now taken on a life of its own. Mm. But I think um, you know some of the some of the former players and um, columnists in the sports pages are saying, you know, it's actually now beginning to damage the team, like you know, because 
Julius Caesar was, he was in tears before the penalty shootout. It would be great to be in tears afterwards when you've managed to get your team into the quarterfinal. But beforehand, is that the state? Okay, it worked out okay, but there seems to be a real fragility um, in their psyche at the moment, and it is beginning to worry people. Uh, I mean, speaking of fragility in the psyche, um, what's been happening in Uruguay over the last little while is quite interesting. Um, I mean, we, we saw that Luis Suarez obviously claimed to have fallen over and the shoulder hit him in the mouth. And then yesterday he apologises and while he doesn't quite say that he bit Keeney, he does admit that Keeney suffered the physical effects of a bite that was inflicted somehow. I mean, you've been following sort of the reaction in uh, Uruguay, which which has obviously been, been partisan and, uh, and in favour of Suarez. How would you assess what's been going on there over the last couple of days? I think it's quite surprising. I, I don't think it is typical of, of Uruguay. Uh, Uruguay within Latin America, I would say, is one of the most progressive, liberal, and um, tranquilo countries. Like you know, it used to be called the the Switzerland of of South America, and um, the reaction, which has been um, very bitter, hurt, infused with nationalism and um, a kind of uh, a real sense that the world is out to get them is not is not typical at all of Uruguay, um, and I think it reflects that even in Uruguay, football and national identity are very tied up, but also the fact that uh, it's a very proud footballing nation, but increasingly their greatest triumphs are in the past and not the present. And Suarez is not once in a generation player; he's once in several generations. And I think they were really hoping that. You know, they had an, an aging but very good team coming into this tournament, but topped with Suarez. They were thinking mm, maybe you know this could, this could be you know uh, promising. And then when the, he came on, came back from the knee injury, came on against England, scored two amazing goals. They thought like, oh, this is on. And then as quick as you like, it's all over. Mm. And uh, I think it's it's just scrambled their reasoning because this sort of uh, irrational reaction is not typical of Uruguay at all. Uh, maybe, I mean, what do you think of how they've behaved? With, I mean, okay, maybe having sympathy for Luis Suarez himself is <laughs> maybe maybe he's not the person who deserves sympathy uh, in this particular occasion. But they, do you think it's helping him in a, in a way that the way that they? It seems like nothing he does can actually result in uh, in, in the people sort of turning around and saying, "Well, hang on, Luis, that's not really good." I mean, it is. Is it necessarily the best way to treat him? I mean, Tabarez, obviously very defensive of him, but I could take Tabarez's concern for his players a bit more seriously if I hadn't seen him send one of them back out into the pitch concussed in, in a game. Um, that there's a certain amount of self-interest going on in, in, in you know, hit the way he's handled it. And, uh, and maybe the player would be better served if they took a, actually a sterner line with him. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think they're... Um they're not helping Luis Suarez, and they're also not helping their own cause because he's only 27. So you know he could be playing for the national team for a long time to come. Um, you would hope that uh, when the microphones are, are gone, that uh, Tabarez is going, looks on, you need help, or when the president goes out and meets him at the airport publicly, you know, shows support but says, "Look, here's our number one shrink. You know, I mm. want you to to meet him." Um, but unfortunately, the reaction seems to be a replay of what happened when he was involved in the two biting incidents in Europe, where, again, people in, back home in Uruguay became very defensive. 
about it, and they don't seem to be. Oh, it was the same. It was the same in Uruguay in both occasions. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so uh, you know the the whole um, uh, biting incident previously at Liverpool, there was no condemnation really of Suarez. Like people said, oh, yeah, you know, it, he bit him. Yeah, okay, he did. But what about you know that elbow that smashed someone's nose? And you know, it was all that kind of trying to relativize it away. So they'd be, I think, much better off going. Even if it's just in private, if they can't bring themselves to say it in public, look, you're amazing, but there's an issue here. Let's let's sort it out as quickly as possible and um, get it done. But then, you know, um, I don't know. Maybe maybe you do. But like, did Liverpool get uh, counselling for him um, after the bite, or did they just go, no, no, you're fine? Oh no, no. I mean, Liverpool have been been standing with him unto, unto death. So uh, <laughs> I think he just has that effect on people. He must do, you know, and maybe it's because he's very stubborn himself and he just refuses to see there's a problem there. But that's all, you know, people who have a problem are often the last ones to, to recognize it. And that's why you need interventions. And it would seem that there definitely seems to be a case for an intervention here. What about Switzerland today? Do they, do they have a problem? Will they need an intervention? <laughs> <laughs> I, I saw Switzerland against France and I was quite shocked you know because I sort of always associated Switzerland being you know really solid at the back and taking care of the defense before venturing further up up the field and so I was quite shocked at how France ripped them apart and that definitely put France on the map for me as as contenders here um but then Switzerland uh you know pulled themselves together okay not against a great team but uh, it looked more like the the Switzerland um, I knew, and I think they have one of the wiliest coaches at the tournament um, who might look at the Argentine team and think it's unbalanced and find the gaps between you know the back line and, and the front line. Argentina are essentially playing four two four at the moment, so there's a lot of space where you can try and take control in the game in the middle of the field. But they just don't have the quality of Argentina, and they don't have anyone near Lionel Messi. So you'd have to say Argentina favourites. Yeah, great stuff there, Kenneth. Tom Hennigan, who you were speaking to, based in South America, uh, particularly interested in those insights about Suarez. Suarez, uh, I think we already were aware that he was treated fairly reverentially in Uruguay, but that's really driven home there now. Yeah, I mean, Suarez, is he reminds me of, he's essentially, um, you know, the ring in The Lord of the Rings. Um, this sort of cursed... Uh, cursed artifact that confers great power on its bearer, but also it is the point that that when people have defended Suarez, and obviously we've seen it from uh, from Liverpool fans, uh, and and now um, from from Uruguayans, or you know most Uruguayans. I don't think I don't necessarily think all Uruguayans have have jumped over the fence, <laughs> jumped over the fence on this one. Clearly, quite a, quite a number of them have, but. The thing to remember is that always this defense of the player is motivated by self-interest, really. It's because he's a brilliant player. He's a man is a genius. He's a genius football player. And all that we're talking here about football fans who ultimately want to see the genius able to play for their team, not banned, not thrown uh, to the sidelines and unable to help and also to you know to you know we're talking about them as as supporters for them not to have to deal with this idea that they may be may in fact uh, have been supporting someone who is unworthy of the support you know no one wants to feel that way no nobody wants to feel let down by their heroes so always i think this sort of defensive uh, of the player 
whatever he's been doing comes down in a sense to a kind of self-interest, whether it be for, you know, in the footballing sense for the team or, or in the psychological sense to preserve your own sort of self-respect. Nah. I don't know if you call it delusion. I mean, I'm not, uh, delusion would suggest that there's never any basis to, to defend him in reality, when in fact there is. You know, I mean, the guy's done wrong, but I think, you know, at the same time, he's not necessarily, uh, you know, history's greatest monster. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, but maybe, maybe people need to, need to sort of think about that. Um, and maybe it's one of the reasons why he, he does seem to be recidivist in certain respects that, you know, people, People haven't really acted in his best interests either. You know, yeah. people even even those who who claim to be to, to be his defenders. Peter has tweeted in on this, Ken, at second captain. He says Ronnie Whelan says Suarez most mercenary footballer of all time. Even making his apologies suit his bank balance. Do you agree? You probably haven't seen Ronnie Whelan speaking last night, but uh, essentially, I think Peter has it there. He uh, seems quite angry about the Barcelona angle to this. The idea that well, Suarez hasn't even been in touch with Liverpool, but it looks like he wants this move to Barcelona, so has apologised on that basis, and that makes him mercenary. But uh, you know, I mean, once again, I, I mean, I think I think I don't think Ronnie Whelan would deny that he's he, he's got a certain amount of sympathy for Liverpool. Um, so it seems to me that Ronnie Whelan will only is only criticising Suarez now that it looks like Suarez is probably not going to be playing for. Liverpool anymore. I mean, did Ronnie Whelan criticise Suarez when Suarez made was forced to apologise for any of his previous any any of the things that he did while at Liverpool by Liverpool? I mean, come on. We all know that when he apologised for the Ivanovic thing, that was at the behest of the club. Um, he only eventually uh, apologised for not shaking Ever's hand. I think when the club, you know, sat him down and told him this is going to have to happen now. Um, you know, so on those occasions, it seems to me as though those apologies were equally sincere. They were also at the behest of a club. They just happened to be a different club. It was Liverpool as opposed to Barcelona. So, you know, I, I don't really see that this necessarily makes any big difference to Suarez or how he's behaved. But may, but evidently, it makes a difference to how he's judged by some Liverpool supporters anyway. I mean, what they were prepared to overlook when Suarez was there, you know, swaddling the shit. Um, suddenly, uh, it's a little bit different. It looks as though he's interested in wearing another shirt. There was a welcome addition to the RT panel for the second game last night. Brad Friedel was there. He's um, been, I think he might have been on BBC there when he was still over in Brazil, but he's back in this neck of the woods. And I think, um, I mentioned Kenny Cunningham there, Ken, and I'm sure you're interested to know what's going on back here. Everyone's watching this on TV. Kenny's scattergun approach is taking out all... Co- Anyone who sits to his left seems to really wind Kenny up. He just does not like people sitting on his left-hand side. But Brad Friedel came in and brought... Oh, I tweeted about it last night. It just makes you feel safe. You just... Nothing bad is going to happen when Brad Friedel is in this world, as, as far as I can see. And his dynamic with Liam Brady was pretty interesting because you could see Brady was, I think Brady was treating him almost like the guy who arrives at the door to bring your daughter to the Debs. You probably, you're not sure about him. Instinctively, you don't fully trust him. But then, well, this guy, he's brought some chocolates. He seems, he seems to be treating my daughter pretty well. Yeah, and by the end of it, Brady's almost having laughs and jokes and going out for a beer with uh, with Brad Friedel. So uh, an interesting addition to the dynamic there. But I've digressed completely from what we want to talk about, Ken, which is mm-hmm. the World Cup and tomorrow's game between Belgium and... Uh, tonight, tonight's game between Belgium and USA. I haven't touched on that yet. Jurgen Klinsmann has told his players to... I've uh, told his players to tell their wives and girlfriends to book the tickets all the way through to the end of the tournament. Yeah. Um, of course, they do have a thing here in Brazil where if you buy... Uh, I know that if you if you say buy a ticket for the last flight of the day, 
and then you turn up uh, then you turn up earlier than you thought at the airport you can just ask them hey can i get on the next flight and they'll say yeah sure so maybe the same thing applies i'm sure with the sort of uh, executive class flexi travel uh, that the US team will have booked they can rock, rock at the airport pretty much any time and get in the next plane back to the States which I imagine is what they're going to be doing tomorrow uh, because they are the team in the World Cup that most reminds me of the Republic of Ireland oh, and, and that's not a good thing um, they uh, <laughs> I was at their game against Germany now admittedly uh, it wasn't it was, a, it was a funny game because of the strange setup, that the nature of the f fact that you know both teams could qualify with a certain result, and in fact both teams did qualify, with, even with the Germany victory, and maybe Germany weren't going at it, uh, you know, giving it the full gun, let's say. But the United States technically are a poor team. I mean, poor, not necessarily poor compared to the Republic of Ireland. I say they're probably a little bit better than us, but poor compared to the general standard of teams in this tournament, and. What they have managed to do is play really well. As a team. I mean, I say this technically they're a poor team, although we do have to remember they they almost scored the goal of the tournament in the last minute against Germany. It was a goal. It would have been not unlike the Cambiasso goal for Argentina against uh, Serbia in the 2006 World Cup, a flowing move from one of the field to the other, culminating in a shot on goal, which was only blocked by this, this flying tackle by uh, Philip Lahm. Uh, it would have been an amazing goal, but it was an uncharacteristic piece of play from the Americans. Um, you know, there was a lot of overhead passes from midfield. There was just bad pieces of control where the, where the ball would come to a player and he just wouldn't get the right touch and it. it would almost go through him or, or come off his foot. Uh, too many times for this level of competition, we saw that happen. Where the Americans have been able to compensate is the fact that they've got in midfield some uh, really, I mean, it sounds like such a cliche, I don't know, but they really are very, very good athletes in midfield. You've got um, uh, Bradley, who's a big, strong tank of a player. You've got Jermaine Jones and Kyle Beckerman, who's been phew, one of the nastiest players in the tournament. But, you know, it's good, to, it's good to have a little bit of meanness. You know, these guys are covering the ground really well. They're getting into the opponent's faces. Uh, I mean, I imagine that Fellaini isn't going to like playing against, you know, someone like Beckerman. Maybe that could be the United States' best hope. I mean, they do have a manager who knows all about that side of the game. I mean, what if Fellaini can be induced to swing an elbow in the first half at some stage? Maybe that sort of changes things a little bit. Um, so I'd, I would watch out for that in this game tonight. The United States, though, I think are going to work hard, but I can't imagine that they're going to be able to stop Eden Hazard walking around their defenders a couple of times and, and doing something to win the game for Belgium. One more small piece of news from back home, Ken, is that Roy Keane, well, as I speak, by the time people listen to this, it may have been announced, but the announcement is imminent, as I speak, of his arrival at Aston Villa as an assistant manager. I, don't know, I guess <laughs> it's been talked about so much as it was developing that maybe it's not very exciting when it actually happens. But uh, are you pleased for Roy Keane that he's back in a full time, full, full time job? Well, if, if becoming the assistant manager of Aston Villa makes him happy, then then fair enough. Um, I mean, I, I find it a, a slightly strange move. Um, but obviously, it's been on the cards for a while now. Uh, and he's obviously had time to think a lot about it and, and discuss it with all the relevant people. And if he thinks it's a good move for him, um, then fair enough. I, I mean, personally, I'm a little bit disappointed that he, that he wasn't able to do at least some of the World Cup punditry for ITV because I would have loved to see him on that England Uruguay game and also I would have loved to see him on that 
Uruguay-Italy game. If he could have just even come over for the two Uruguay matches, those two Uruguay matches, I think, you know, it's a pity that we missed out on that. Maybe he just didn't fancy necessarily going away to going away and hanging out in Copacabana for three to four weeks. Um, what, sitting on a beach? He could, those beautiful shots of Glenn Hoddle and Ian Wright and Gordon Strachan and all these guys. Surely keen on the middle. Oh, what, about Chris, what about Chris Kamara, by the way? Did you see Chris Kamara? What did Chris Kamara do? Chris Kamara chased down and, and oh, um, captured. He, he, he chased down and captured a, a street robber. And then, as the man laid trust on the pavement, photographed him, first of all, um, with his, you know, his, his face. Second, uh, when, he'd, when he had a hood on, like he was, he was sitting on the pavement with a hood on, like one of these Abu Ghraib uh, prisoners. And you've got Chris Kamara standing uh, next to him, looking proud like Hemingway. Next to a couple of uh, swordfish that he's that he's strung up, um, and posting all these to Twitter, uh, boasting about how he hasn't lost his pace and all this kind of thing. What an idiot! What an absolute idiot Chris Kamara is. I mean, number one for the abuse of human dignity implicit in first of all, um, you know, capture, you know, photographing a man who's lying on the pavement like that and putting him on on Twitter to be retweeted thousands of times. I mean, personally, it's not something that I think. Uh, I, I didn't think it, it showed uh, a lot of class from Chris Kamara. But secondly, you know, running across, running after a guy like that in a city like this, I don't know what the guy had stolen, but to me it would want to be something very, very important to make me want to take those kind of risks. Chris Kamara, Chris Kamara is, a lucky, is a lucky guy to get away with that. And great photographs, but uh, he wouldn't want to do it too many more times. If you haven't heard our interview with David Gillick yet in his retirement, we spoke to David yesterday in studio and he was really, really interesting. I thought it was a little bit about the decision to retire and thinking behind that, but more about his career in general and his mindset. He's one of those guys, just one of those unbelievably steely competitors who uh, was very willing to talk about how he developed that mental strength and how he dealt with the initial nerves. He told, I don't want to give you the whole interview now, but he did tell a really good story of one of the first major championships he was involved in. It could have been the first European indoors. I've forgotten the, ex- the, exact, uh, the exact championships, but his mum drops him to the airport and he can't eat is a couple of days before the race he arrives there his coach tries to get him to eat He's, he can't eat he eventually finds himself attempting to force something down not staying down runs a race wins it thinks that's great but if I'm going to make a long term career out of this I really have to be able to eat sometimes it'll be great and at that stage he sought out a bit of sports psychology and started looking to that side of the game so really interesting stuff have a listen to that if you can on the usual platforms irishtimes.com it's, it's an interesting one actually yeah. oh, that, that whole subject of, of diets and sportsmen I remember reading that you know Tommy Smith the uh, Liverpool captain hard man of the uh, sort of 60s and 70s yeah I interviewed him many years ago can I do I do remember we, him yeah. we, in, we interviewed him and he told us a, he told us a lovely story about how uh, <laughs> he told us a story about how he uh, the 96 FA Cup final Tommy Smith who was then receiving disability benefit uh, for he basically had injuries from his playing career, which had, which had impaired his mobility. Um, but in this 96 FA Cup final, Liverpool against Man United, he uh, he took a penalty at halftime, some penalty competition. And anyway, someone um, someone in the crowd mm-hmm. uh, called up the disability or called up the social welfare and had him disqualified for receiving disability benefit because they said, well, look at this, you know, uh, it's a miracle. Tommy Smith, it, it seems, is, is fit enough to take a penalty, but... Um, but then he comes down and collects his, his uh, disability check. Anyway, the story that Tommy Smith told was that a few years after that, someone had, uh, someone had called him up and said, hey, listen, Tommy, you know, uh, you know that lad uh, from the cup file at Wembley who, uh, who grasped on you, as he put it? And, uh, <laughs> and Tommy Smith said, yeah. 
And the guy on the other end of the phone said, he's dead. <laughs> that was the punchline, you know? So, <laughs> so we, we, thought, we thought, oh, okay, well, thanks, thanks, Tommy. Anyway, anyway but the, the point I was going to make about Tommy Cla- Classy, classy story, that, though. Was that, uh, was that he, um, he uh, apparently never used to eat anything on the day of a match. <laughs> he apparently eating food on the day of a match made him feel made him feel sick or, or he, he just didn't like it so essentially he would go he'd just go all day without eating anything and then play <laughs> I mean I think this guy played nearly you know he's 600 and something games mm. many of them in a in a hypoglycemic days I would imagine <laughs> but uh but you know it, it worked for him so uh you know, you can you can take that in your your sports science and and stuff it or whatever it is whatever it is you want to do at your sports science. IrishTimes.com forward slash second captains. You can listen to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, the Podcast Republic app on Android. You heard Ken speaking to Tom Hennigan earlier on. Tom is writing great stuff out there as well for the Irish Times. So read himself, read Ken, read Emmett Malone, and David McKechnie. They're all out there and um, and writing superb stuff. Ken, you're going to be reporting back from watching Leo Messi tonight. So I can just wish you well on that and hope you enjoy the game. Oh, I hope I, I hope I enjoy the game too. I'm, I'm tra- I've travelled a long way to see this game. I came down here on a sleeper bus. Actually, it was amazing. I love that. Uh, I love that bus. Get on the bus in uh, Rio, yeah. five to five to midnight. Um, immediately fall asleep on this wonderful reclining bed type thing. Yeah. Wake up. They give you blankets and, and stuff. Wake up in Sao Paulo almost immediately. It's like you've been teleported there. It's like. It's like the bus isn't a bus that uses a combustion engine and wheels to move from Rio to Sao Paulo. It's like a dream factory that harnesses the power of dreams to transform the city outside into a different city. Now, that was my first. That was my first thought on on waking up in Sao Paulo this morning. So I'm already a little bit frontal, a little bit delirious, and. Uh, who knows what's going to happen as this as the long hours of this day pass by? Right. We'll leave it on that note. Thanks, Ken. And thank you very much for listening. We'll talk to you tomorrow. What is that? It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. <laughs>